We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about our relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Be sure to stay tuned to the end for a special invitation from Leslie. Thank you for joining us. I'm Julie Sedenko here with relationship expert Leslie Vernick. And today we're talking about apologies. When are they real and when are they not? Sorry can be a powerful word if it's followed by sincere actions. It can also be really confusing, especially to a woman who desperately wants her marriage to work, who desperately wants her husband to be truly sorry and to change. So many people use the word sorry, but go back to their bad and even abusive habits. But we can't expect a person to be perfect either. So Leslie, how do we tell when someone is truly sorry? I think we want to believe people who say they're sorry. And so we do give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, we, we trust that their words mean something. It's only as we see the repeat of the same behaviors over and over again that we begin to question how sorry are they. But one big red flag to know that someone is truly sorry or not truly sorry, I think, is immediately in the discovery of what what they did that was wrong. Maybe they had an affair, maybe they lied to you, maybe they took money that wasn't theirs to take, or they didn't ask for your opinion on that if you're married to someone, or they've committed a crime, whatever they've done. People who are truly sorry care about the impact that their behavior caused you, the harm that they've caused. They care about that. I was teaching about this in our pastoral training class on helping young pastors discern whether a marriage is abusive or not. And, you know, this whole question about sorry came up and, you know, well, they say they're sorry. And how do we know whether they really are or not? We believe them. Love believes all things kind of thing. And so I said, well, let's give this example. If you were driving out of the parking lot today in your car and another one of you was texting and they didn't notice that they were, you know, moving in their car and, and your car was in front of them and they crashed into your car and they left significant damage, and your head was gashed because you hadn't put your seatbelt on yet. And they jumped out of their car and they said, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. But you know, I am so glad it's you because you're the pastor and love covers a multitude of sins and you need to forgive me. So thanks for forgiveness and I'll see you next week. And they jump back in their car and they drive off. So they said sort of the right sounding words. They used the Bible. They said they were sorry. Oh my gosh, I am so sorry. But they didn't show any concern about the impact. Your car's broken. The radiator is smoking. Your head's bleeding. Someone who's truly sorry says, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. Let me call an ambulance. Are you okay? You know, here's my insurance card. And if your car needs repairs, here's my phone number. And if your insurance doesn't cover everything, I'll cover the deductible. And if you need to rent a car, I'll pay for that too. I am truly sorry. That's the difference between sorry that expects you to get over it. You're too sensitive. Why do you keep bringing this up? I don't want to talk about it. Why are you trying to make me feel bad? That's not genuine sorry. It's, hey, yeah, I might regret what I did because, oh my gosh, I see that it costs, but don't make me feel accountable for that. That's not right. 
you're not being a good Christian. You're not forgiving me. You're not long-suffering. You're keeping a record of wrongs, and it becomes accusatory, and you're not allowed to talk about the impact. It bothers me that you keep bringing this up. And so that would be a huge red flag when someone does that to you. When you're impacted by someone's sin, you find porn on the computer, and you're impacted, and you're feeling, I don't know who this man is. I I thought we were good. I thought everything was fine between us. And I see you've been watching porn for the last year. I, I, I am devastated. And you're not allowed to talk about it because it makes him feel bad. But he's sorry. And you need to get over it. He won't do it again. That's the difference. So I think the first big red flag is do they care about the impact that they have caused? A really good biblical example of this, because sometimes I get some kickback, Julie, that well, making amends and all that, that's all Old Testament theology. And God was really clear in the Old Testament when he's talking about relationships and building community, that if you do something that impacts someone, I didn't look it up, but if you look through Deuteronomy and Numbers, there's a lot of instances in those two Old Testament books where God has the regulations for community life. And he says things like, if you have an ox that escaped from your fence, and you didn't even realize it escaped from your fence, but that ox harmed another person's ox, you've got to pay back their ox. And if you knew that your fence wasn't repaired right, you need to give them two oxes. In other words, you need to make restitution for the damage you caused, even if it wasn't unintentional, even if you know you didn't realize that was broken. But if you did realize that was broken, if you did realize that it was a problem and you ignored it and you didn't do your due diligence at protecting your neighbor, then you owe them more. And so that's the Old Testament rules of community life. But in the New Testament, we see a really good example. I think it's in Luke 19, where Zacchaeus, the very corrupt tax collector, he was the chief among tax collectors because he was so corrupt. And in that day, Jewish tax collectors would always extort. They would get taxes for the Roman government, but then they would add a surtax and they would take, steal from their fellow Jews because they could. And Zacchaeus was described as a very wealthy man, the chief tax collector. And remember in that story, when he went up to find Jesus and he was a little short man and he couldn't see Jesus and the crowd wasn't willing to break through and let him in because they didn't like him. And so he climbed up that tree and Jesus saw Zacchaeus and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. And something in Zacchaeus's heart broke Hmm. when Jesus saw him, saw all of his ugliness, all of his tax corruption, all of his wealth. And see, Zacchaeus said out loud in front of the crowd that he had swindled, Lord, I will give half my money to the poor because money was Zacchaeus' God. So right away, we see a conversion experience, a repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart. He's got a different heart. I don't love money the most anymore. Lord, I love you the most. I will give half my money to the poor and anyone I have cheated. And all these people are listening. I will pay back four times. So immediately, Zacchaeus, he's sorry for the way he's been, and he is interested in making restitution to those he has harmed. That's what sorry looks like, and it shows up in actions. Okay, so I'm thinking of an instance where a husband is is convicted. Maybe it's in a church service, or for whatever reason, he's convicted. He sees what he's done. He goes to his wife, he apologizes, and she maybe vents. This is all the things you've done to me because for the first time, he's willing to listen. He's willing to acknowledge it. And they have this very healing conversation and he says he's sorry. Now, 
I'm going to say this guy's sincere. He is sorry, but old habits die hard. So he's not going to be Mr. Perfect from then on. And I think sometimes the woman is like, okay, you'll never do that again to me, or you'll you'll be a completely different person from now on. Is that an okay expectation? How does she judge his actions going from that point forward? So here's a story in my own life that I've shared before, and I'll share it. Um, I've never shared it on the podcast, but most of you know who listen to me that I grew up in an abusive home. I had an abusive mom, and she was physically, emotionally abusive to me. And one of the things that I was really scared of when I became a mom is that I could be like her. Um, I never thought I would be like her until I had an infant who was so colicky. I understood how you could just shake a baby and just say, stop it. I need to sleep. One time my husband came home and he found me sound asleep on the bed. My, my son screaming in the bassinet. I was so exhausted. I was like unconscious, exhausted. And I laid him in the bassinet. I couldn't calm him. There's nothing I could do. And I just fell asleep. I just had to take care of me. And so I could then begin to understand how someone could get so unglued inside that they could do something harmful. I didn't at that moment, but I did do something harmful later on when he was two years old. He was throwing a fit in a dressing room. I was trying on some new clothes. I'd finally lost my baby weight. I wanted to get something new to wear. And of course, two-year-olds hate being in the dressing room with their mother and he was not (laughs) having it, you know? So he was throwing a little fit on the floor and it was embarrassing me because it was a small little boutique shop and there were other people in the shop and he was honestly you know, flailing on the floor and other people could hear in the dressing room. And I just was humiliated by that. Like what's wrong with my child that he's acting up like that. And so I grabbed him by his little arm and I yanked him to his feet really hard. And I, and and I said, stop it. And he looked at me with his big blue eyes and his little arm dangling from his elbow. And he said, mom, you broke my arm. And he said that really loud and everyone in the store could hear. And I, Grabbed him. I got dressed. His little elbow was dangling from dangling from his arm. Put him in his car seat. Took him right to the ER. Told the doctor what I did. I told him I yanked him up. I was mad. He was throwing a fit. I yanked him up too harshly. I, I broke his elbow. And the doctor said, well, you didn't break his elbow. That's the good news. But his elbow did come out of his socket. And I'm going to show you how to put it in because he's probably got a thing called nursemaid's elbow. It's a weak spot in his elbow. It may come out again when he's playing or horsing around. This is how you put it back in. And I was relieved that his arm wasn't broken and the doctor mm-hmm. didn't call the child abuse authorities on me. However, it showed me, oh my gosh, I am capable of being just like my mom. So I was sorry. I confessed. I didn't make excuses. I told my husband what I did. I came home, but then I had to work on my temper. I had to work on how was I going to manage myself when he acted up again, because he was two and we got a lot of years together. (laughs) Right. And so I told my children, I, you know, I told my kids, Hey, if I'm ever acting in a way that makes you feel scared, it's okay for you to tell me and I will stop because there were two things that needed to happen. And of course I wasn't going to be perfect, but I was committed to changing. But two things had to happen. One is I had to be self-aware enough to know I was crossing the line. And that's not always possible. Like sometimes you're just in the moment and you're not self-aware to call yourself back, right? And so I invited my children to be my reminders. You're scaring me, mom. 
that I was crossing the line. Even if I didn't think I was crossing the line, they were feeling it. And I promised them, as soon as you tell me that you feel scared, I will take a time out. And so that, that was my, that was my next step of getting the help I needed to regulate, learning to be more self-aware of when I was crossing that line or getting close to that line and inviting my littles and my husband to say, Hey, I think you need a time out or I'm getting scared so that I could go and calm myself down. Even if I didn't think I was at that line, they thought that I was at that line and they were feeling scared. And so this is where change happens is we don't change all by ourselves perfectly. You're absolutely right, Julie. But what we have to do is define, all right, what was that old history? So my definition of old history is, hey, my pattern is when I got upset, I just reacted. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I reacted in ways that caused harm to others, verbally vomiting or yanking my kid up by his arm. You know, I just reacted when I got angry or upset or especially humiliated. I would just shut that down as fast as possible. And, you know, scold or curse or say something ugly to get someone to be shocked enough to stop, right? So that's my pattern. So that's what I'm going to, that's what I typically do. How am I going to do it different if I'm really sorry and I don't want to keep doing that? I've got to create some boundaries around myself. I need to create some accountability. I may need to get some help to learn how to do it differently so that I build new history. And that's what we call it, old history. What's the old history? And what are we building to new history? And it's not going to be perfect, just like if I'm going to eat healthy. I can be really sorry. I overate. I gained all this weight over Christmas. I feel like a louse. I'm horribly disappointed in myself. And New Year's, I'm going to start on a new track, like we all do, right? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then, you know, two weeks into New Year's, we're back to eating our cookies and donuts and whatever else we're eating because we are creatures of habit. So how change happens is we commit to change, first of all, but then we have to really work at change and we have to define what does eating healthy look like? How am I going to do that? What meal prep am I going to do to make sure I'm not starving at five o'clock and now I'm eating the the cookies in the cabinet because my dinner's not ready? What- okay. But but then, I and I'm going to stop you because I, I see where you're going, but I also know if, if you're eating the cookies in the cabinet, does, does your husband then come remind you? Because that's not going to be a good conversation if, if my husband does that to me, you know, if I'm blowing it. So if, if you have a husband that maybe has repented for actions and he says, I'm going to go to counseling, do you follow up to make sure he's doing what he's doing? Do you look at his phone? Do you call his counselor to make sure that he is becoming the person he promised to be? Do you know what no. I'm saying? Yeah. No, you you are not the policeman. You are not the policeman of another. So I invited my children to tell me. If they had just said, they're going to tell me. Now, from now on, I'm going to tell you when you're losing control. I wouldn't have liked that either. I'm going to so, lose control. Yeah. yeah. So so accountability is invited. So So someone can't hold you accountable. Like, can you imagine going to a women's retreat? And you see someone who obviously has some issues with their health and you start holding them accountable for, hey, but I saw you didn't go to the gym today. Or, hey, I saw you ate that donut earlier. That's That would be inappropriate. It would be cruel. They're not asking you to hold them accountable, right? When someone is truly repentant and they do want to change, again, they care for the damage they've caused. And if they're caught in a trespass and they have a habit of sinning in a certain way, Hopefully they are asking for accountability. 
So they're saying to you, hey, if you notice that I'm starting to lose it, if you notice that I'm eating cookies and not taking time to meal prep, I'm inviting you to say, hey, I noticed that you're falling back on what you said you were, was important to you. It was important to you to learn to eat healthy. And I see that you're not doing that. What's that about? So not in a scolding way, but in a, hey, I'm noticing that what you told me and what you're doing do not match anymore. Right. And let's talk about that. And so you're not responsible to monitor his phone, to put controls on his computer, to make sure he goes to counseling. Um, I think it's important if he says, I'm going to do that. That if you are anxious that he's not doing that, that you could say, hey, I'm having a little anxiety attack right now. I don't, I haven't heard that you've been to your counselor. I don't know what you're doing there. Are you even going? And I don't want to be your babysitter and I don't want to be your policeman, but I do need some information on how you're doing with the progress that you said you wanted to make. Or I'm feeling a little anxious because you've been spending an awful lot of time on your phone and that was our habit in the past. And then I found all that stuff on your phone. So if I asked you right now, if I could look at your phone, what might I see? Hmm. Right? So those would be ways to ask someone, are you following through with what you said you were going to do? Not, I get to decide what you need to do to change. Right? Okay. It's, so if someone is truly repentant, repentant means they want to change. Now you're right in that their change takes time and it does take time to build new habits. So no one changes perfectly. But if someone says, hey, I really want to change my eating habits. I'm diabetic. I really need to stop drinking so much Coke. And I really need to do that. And that you see them really working on that. And then they have a slip up at Christmas or whatever. And, you know, and then you see them slipping up again, you say to them, hey, I know a couple of weeks ago, you got that bad news about diabetes. And I'm noticing that you're not as vigilant over your health as you once were. What's that about? That's a very kind, soft wake-up call for them to say, let's reorient. Or they might say, you know what? I tried that. It doesn't work and I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And that tells you something, right? Their desire to change isn't strong enough to actually implement the change. I'm thinking of a post in our Conquer group, and I don't want to break confidentiality, of course, but there was a post where a woman her husband had come to her and it was kind of what she had always wanted. He seemed to get it. And she got this hope that, okay, things are going to be different now. But she was afraid, rightfully so, that maybe he's not going to follow through. And how do I know? And the people that were commenting and giving advice, it was all over the board. And one woman suggested this book that you know, as far as I know, is a good book. I hadn't read it, but she said, read this book and you'll come up with a list of how to know if he's really sorry. And I remember thinking, man, I hope the guys read that book because that seems a little, if, if I was going to be held responsible for what's in some book, I'm probably going to fail miserably. And so does she go to him offer the book? Does she say, I'm going to hold you accountable? I, I I struggle when I see some of this because I almost feel like the guy's being set up for failure. And yet I don't want to just give him no accountability at all. How, well, what is, what is the right balance? 
So it's not your job to manage your husband's life. It's your, as a helpmate, your job is to help him manage his life in the way he wants to manage it. Right. So, so, so going back to if, and, and then you say yes or no to that. So if your husband's saying, I do want, I'm so sorry. I get what you're saying. I don't want to watch porn anymore either. Right. So then I think if that's true, if that's true, then the next conversation might be, so what's your plan? Because this is a very tempting thing. You know, if I had chocolate all over the house, I would be eating it. You're so, done right. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's your plan to not watch porn because it's so accessible? It's on your computer, it's on your phone. You can go here. You know, what's your plan to not do that? Because if you really don't want to do that, oh, I don't know. I don't have a plan. Well, then are you going to create a plan? Are you going to get some help to find a plan? Well, I, I, I'll think about it. Well, then just by those answers, you know that they're not 100% committed to working on it. Like when you clean out your house from all chocolate, in that moment, you are committed to working on it. That doesn't mean you're not going to go to the store two weeks from now and buy chocolate and bring it back home. But when you do that, you're saying, hey, I want to change. I don't want to be tempted in those moments to make a poor choice. When he's not willing to do anything to show a plan forward for helping himself, then you can't support and hold him accountable to that plan because he doesn't have one and he doesn't even want to talk about having one. So I think there is something that that tells you things when you ask respectful questions and not demand he do what you think he needs to do. Well, you need to get a counselor. You need to go to the pastor. You need to be accountable. That's structuring. How would you feel if someone said, hey, if you said, oh, I feel so fat today. And someone said, okay, you need to get a plan. I think we'll join Weight Watchers. You need to go to the gym. I'm going to measure your waist every week. See if you're doing your exercise. You'd be like, stop it, right? Stop it. You're not in control of my life. If I decide to do that, then I'm so happy that you say, hey, I'll watch the kids when you go to the gym, right? Or yay, I'm so glad you lost those five pounds. You look great. But for them to manage your change is going to only create resistance and rebellion in the person because we're adults. We don't need someone to manage our change. They can support it. They can't manage it. There's a verse in Proverbs that I really like, Proverbs 20, verse 11 and 12. It says this, even children are known by the way they act, whether their conduct is pure and whether it is right. Ears to hear and eyes to see. Both are gifts from the Lord. In other words, we hear the apology. Okay. Eyes to see. Is there follow-up? Are there actions? Even children are known by the way they act, not what they say but by the way they act. So we want to see someone showing some energy given toward their change and what mental energy, how are they going to plan for change? How are they going to plan for temptation? And what kind of physical energy, what kind of controls have they decided to put on their computer? What kind of accountability partners have they decided to have and invite into their lives and into their story and into their struggle? And if they're not doing any of that, I'm not going to judge the sincerity of their words, but I'm not going to hope for change. Hmm. What if you just don't believe them when they say they're sorry? Well, I think that might be 
very common because people typically do say they're sorry um, and maybe they feel regret about something, but they're not truly repentant. There's another verse that I thought would be really helpful for our listeners about this because there's two kinds of sorry, genuine sorry. Okay. So there's two kinds of genuine sorry, and it's important for us to understand the difference even in our own lives, because one kind of sorry or sorrow leads to death, leads to destruction. Judas was a good example of this kind of sorry. He felt sorry after he betrayed Christ. Remember, he came back and yeah. threw the 30 pieces of silver on the ground. He goes, I have sinned. I betrayed innocent blood. So I believe that he was truly regretful, sorrowful over what he did. But then his next step was to go kill himself. Right. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people are so upset over seeing their sin and seeing the ugliness of their sin and what they've done, they become very destructive and they do destructive things. And so that's not repentance. That's a sorrow Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7 that leads to death. Let me read it. He goes, I'm not sorry. Here's Paul saying, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry for that I sent you that severe letter, although I was sorry at first, because I know it was painful for you to hear what I had to say. But now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. Repent and change your ways. Repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you are not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow or sorry that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So there can be someone who's genuinely worldly sorrowful, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this. I'm such a loser. I can't, I, I can't do anything right. What's wrong with me? There's this godly sorrow that leads to self-hatred, that leads to spiritual death, emotional death, physical death, a shameful, accusational self-hatred that can be very destructive. And there's a sorrow that leads to Christ. Peter is an example of that. So Judas was the example of the sorrow that leads to death. Peter is the example of sorrow that leads to life. Peter was sorry that he betrayed Christ three times, right? And and yet his sorry led to change. Peter became a different man. Peter was used by Christ in powerful ways. And so sorry doesn't have to be the end of the story, but we have to have discerning ears as people who live with those who have done some harmful things, are they sorry in the sorry unto repentance sorry, or are they sorry into the sorry unto death way? That's Second Corinthians chapter 7. So let's say, again, the husband or spouse comes and is sorry, and you you believe him, but there's still a lot of healing there because maybe there's a trail of sin and damage that he's done to your own heart. And it would be very tempting, even after that conversation, to keep bringing it back up every time you're reminded of what happened in the past. Maybe he was financially abusive. And every time those bills comes, you want to just rail on him. How do you continue into the next step of healing so that you're not stuck in the past while he's maybe trying to work in on repentance on those actions? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's what forgiveness is. I think that forgiveness cancels the debt of you owe me 
for what you did to me. Right. And so forgiveness cancels the debt of my right to rub your nose into it forever and ever and ever. Um, And I think, you know, to be able to do that takes a lot of spiritual strength, especially when someone's done something pretty awful. Now, that doesn't mean you continue to trust the person or re-engage in relationships. So let me give you an example that all of us can relate to because you brought up finances. If I lent my sister, and you know, my sister's visiting right now. So if I lent her, let's say she was in debt and she needed some money and I lent her $25,000 out of my retirement account. And I said, okay, here's, and she said, okay, and I will, I I have some money over here in this account and I will pay you back in 30 days or hundred days or whatever it is, the agreement we make. And she's my sister. I'm not going to make her sign anything. I trust her. And I lent her my money at, at cost to me of giving her this money. And she comes back later or she never, she never pays me back. She doesn't say a word. And I'm like, where's my money? And she goes, oh, you know, I thought I had that money there, but I didn't realize it had gone here and I needed it for this. And, you know, I had to spend this for my kids and, you know, and I don't have it. And I'm like, what? You told me you would pay me back and you're not paying me back and she's not paying me back. And I can't squeeze blood out of a turnip and I'm out $25,000. What do I do with that debt? What do I do with that anger? Well, I can live with it and continue to harp on her and nag her. And, you know, I do that for a year or two and I still don't get my $25,000 back. I've, you know, my relationship with my sister's icky and I'm still furious inside. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Well, the antidote is I forgive. I forgive the debt. What that means is I don't expect her to pay it back. I don't expect her. Now, if she comes back in a year later and says, Hey, I won the lottery. Here's $25,000. So I owed you. Fine. But I'll take it. Yeah. But I don't expect it. I'm not waiting for it. I'm not angry over it anymore. I've let it go. I've canceled the debt. And I've and now I can move on and I can have a relationship with my sister or not have a relationship with my sister. I may not trust her. I may not ever lend her money again or anything else for that matter, because she's shown herself to be unreliable and untrustworthy that way. But I'm not eating up myself inside over and over again about, I said $25,000. Can't you believe she did this to me? I'm out $25,000. I have less for my. I'm not going there anymore. I'm done. This is what happens when we forgive. We're letting go of the debt. We're letting go of it. We're We're not expecting them to make amends, repay, any of those kind of things. Now, if she does do that, that might go a long way in repairing our relationship, right? I'm repairing our trust and rebuilding some of that broken trust. But if she doesn't do that, I am not going to be held captive emotionally by what she did to me. And so forgiveness releases that and I'm free to now be the best version of me without that anchor of anger and bitterness. And so I think that's part of what the victim's job, whoever's been sinned against, her job is to eventually work through to forgiveness. That still may not solve their relationship problems, especially if she sees right before her eyes that like, if I still saw my sister spending money on trips to Disney World and you know she was going here and she was going there, but she wasn't giving me my $25,000, Every single time I knew she spent money on something that was not necessary and she didn't offer it to me, every time I saw that, I would be reminded of that debt. And if I had forgiven her, it wouldn't be like, oh, it's okay. Have a great time in Disney World. I would have to work through my anger and resentment that she didn't care enough about her responsibilities to me to pay back her debt. And she was living selfishly off of her own money and having pleasure and going to Disney and taking her family to Disney when she could have paid me back, that tells me something about her care for me 
her integrity as a person and our relationship. And that's important information because I may not want a close relationship with a person like that. I certainly wouldn't want to be married to someone like that. And as hard as it is to see and face, that's important information to see and face so that we can live safely and with people who we can trust. What if you can't forgive? It's just the damage has been done and he might be as sorry as sorry can be, but you're just you're just not able to forgive. And what do you do with that? You know, I think we push people to forgive before they're ready. And I think we have a lot of anger and grief to go through before we can get to forgiveness. And I think the other thing is people equate forgiveness with, I still have to live with him. I still have to have sex with him. I still have to kiss him. I could never do that again. So therefore I can't forgive him. And I want to separate forgiveness. Like I might forgive my sister so that I can be better. And we still might not be better because I still don't trust her. So forgiveness doesn't automatically create restoration or reconciliation in the relationship, especially if the person hasn't repented and hasn't changed and isn't willing to make any restitution for the damage they've caused. I might want to forgive, so I'm not eating my insides up with anger and having physical health problems because of my own anger about what she did to me. So that forgiveness is for me to be released, but it's not necessarily indicative that I'm going to be best friends with her again or trust her again or have her have a relationship with her again or lend her money for sure. I won't do that again. And so I think if we can tease those apart a little bit more, that forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. I think we look at this spiritually. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? He said, it is finished. Jesus forgave us before we were even born. He forgave us. When he forgave those people, who, and he said, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. He didn't want to call it the cross with a bunch of bitterness on his spirit over the people who just abused him. Right? Mm -hmm. And so he forgave. He forgave us before we were ever born. But we don't have a relationship with God unless we truly repent, until we appreciate what he did, till we understand the gravity of his sacrifice for us, and we move toward that and forsake our former ways, right? And then we enter into this relationship where our relationship with God is restored. So Jesus paved the way through forgiveness, but we don't get to open the door until we repent, to that relationship. And so I think that's a, a good model for us to understand that we can forgive someone and still not open the door to further relationship unless they truly are repentant. Okay. So I'm listening to you say it may, it may take time to forgive just because he comes to you and says, he's sorry, doesn't mean that you have to restore relationship and go upstairs and have sex. But what is that process? What is I guess appropriate as a Christian believing person to, you know, he might expect you, hey, I said sorry, love forgives all sins. Let's be good again. I'm not going to, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to counseling. I'm doing my thing. What is the process of you becoming okay? And what is a proper expectation on his part for, for you as a wife? Okay. So I think that. The first red flag that I would hear in what you just said is when someone has sinned against someone, especially in a grievous way, if my sister did that, she wouldn't do that. But if she did that, took the $25,000 and never paid me back. And then she's scolding me because I have boundaries over not lending her any more money, or she feels 
entitled to my forgiveness and says, hey, you need to forgive. You need to forgive. I would see that as a red flag that she has no idea the impact that she's caused me. She has no idea the impact and she's very self-absorbed. And so when you're married to someone who is telling you what you need to do when they're still not doing their own work, that's a red flag. When they demand you forgive them, they, you're, it's, it's up to you to bring our relationship back in order, even after they've burnt the house down. And you're just not ready to forgive that yet, right? But somehow you've got to rebuild that house and you've got to make it all nice again because they're sorry. It doesn't work that way. So I think to understand that you have to go through the loss and the grief of what the impact was to you. I, I don't have the marriage I thought I had. I don't even have the man I thought I had. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a porn addict. I thought he was a godly man. He's not that. He's this. And that is a lot to absorb emotionally, just like when someone dies suddenly. I mean, in one level, you know they die, but another hand, you're like, oh, this can't be. I can't accept this, right? And so you're in this state of emotionally not matching what reality is. And that is called grief, where emotionally you're grieving what reality is and letting go of what you thought it was going to be. And so letting that go is the grief process and anger about having to do that. And then comes forgiveness. And forgiveness ultimately is a decision. It's not a feeling. So I think sometimes we feel like, oh, you know, the angels should come in my soul once I forgive. It's forgiveness is a decision. I am deciding that I am not going to expect an apology expect someone to change. I am just canceling the debt they owe me. They owe me all those things. They owe me to care about what they did to me. They owe me to pay for my car that they just crashed into. They owe me, you know, to make restitution for our marriage hardship and all the stuff that I've had to go through, but they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it or they're not capable of doing it. Like if someone was recklessly driving and they ran you over and you broke your two legs and you're in the hospital, I mean, they can pay your bills, but they can't heal your legs. They can't do that. You're having to do that. You're the one who's having to go to physical therapy. You're the one who's out of work all this time and having to suffer that pain over what they did. And they can't fix that for you. You have to fix that for you. You have to go through that process of healing. And at the end of that, you decide, hey, am I going to forgive so that I'm not held hostage by what they did to me with bitterness and anger? Or am I not? And that's a decision you make. I, I'm i reminded of a, a, fr- a good, good friend of mine. I mean, we grew up together. He was in youth group with me and we would go backpacking in Yosemite together with our youth and just had so many memories. And he was one of the best Christians I ever knew. And he married an absolutely lovely woman. He became a pastor and they had a couple of boys and just was kind of the perfect life until one day I was shocked. I mean, that doesn't, that's the understatement of the year, but I found out that he was having multiple affairs. I mean, he was having sex with Anybody that said yes at any time, and it was just horrific. She did nothing to obviously bring any of this on, and they divorced. And he lost his ministry. They lost their income. It was horrific. And they were divorced for a number of years. And I kind of watched, uh, I'm out of state now, so I wasn't up close and personal to it, but I did 
did see her handling it in such a a way that they were able to co-parent well. And she was such a victim. I don't know all the emotional process that she went through, but I will say that my friend did repent. He repented in every possible way you could think from a situation like that, but he didn't get his marriage back right away, uh, not for a very long time. And I don't think he pushed her or or any of those things. He gave her the time she needed to forgive and to heal. And eventually they did remarry. They're not in ministry anymore, but they have a very solid and good marriage now, as far as I can tell. Um, but I think that as you're talking, I'm thinking about them as an example of messy, hard, difficult, and costly, the consequences he had to pay and she had to pay because of his sin. But God could work in both hearts and it could work out if if both people are willing to allow God to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen some of that and it's wonderful. I think the thing that we have to be careful of is that we don't hold ourselves hostage to the dark side, to the bitterness and the anger and the hurt that we feel and not do our own work to get healthy and stay hostage to a marriage where the other person is not doing their work. They're continuing to act out. They're continuing to sin. They may be better at hiding it or lying about it or covering it up, but they're still doing it and feeling like you have no choices. And so forgiveness and building back a trust trusting, safe relationship don't always go together. And so I just want to encourage our women that forgiveness is God's call to you. He says, forgive as I have forgiven you. Forgive as I have forgiven you. But that doesn't mean you can move into a trusting, safe relationship with someone who's harmed you, and especially if they're not working to change. And even if they are working to change, I would have to see long and hard change and over time to see if that really is going to be consistent because anybody can change for a short time to get what they want. And, you know, again, I'm going to use exercise and diet as a good metaphor because most women can relate to that. If you want to get into a dress for a party, you probably can watch your weight and exercise and diet for a couple months to fit into the dress for New Year's Eve party or for a class reunion from high school that you want to look better at. You can do that. But if you're not committed to lifetime change of eating healthy and exercising, as soon as the reunion's over, you're going to gain back the weight because you go back to your old ways. And so if you're separated from someone who has seriously sinned against you and they're either demanding you forgive or they're demanding to come home and you need to let's reconcile our marriage or you're feeling pressure to do that and yet there's been no change or they change just to get back home, understand that that's the carrot. Once they get back home, the change goes back to where they were before because that was the reason they were going to counseling. That was the reason they were working on themselves to get back home. And when that's there, like the reunion, okay, I fit into the dress now. I can eat what I want. And so you want to make sure that change isn't motivated by external reasons. Change is motivated by repentance, a change of heart, I want to be a different man. I'm sure this man, when he was caught, the story that you were telling, you know, I mean, obviously he was a sex addict. He was caught in a trespass and he was really caught. I mean, he was mm -hmm. all over the place with sex. 
But when he really began to repent and realize, I don't want to be like this. I'm caught in an addiction cycle. I need help. I need to change. And he gave her time to heal and change. And over time, she could see that he was different. Over time, she could see consistently with no promises that you get to come back home. But I see that you are not that man. The Apostle Paul is a great example of change. He took three years in the wilderness to begin changing his character. So we understand that change doesn't come quickly or immediately, but change has to happen in order to rebuild safety and trust. Change doesn't have to happen in order for you to forgive. Final question. What do you do when you never get that conversation? You hope and hope and hope. You pray, you send the podcasts and you know hang up the little signs that you hope he reads and that will he'll get it, but he just never says sorry. How do you accept that that's not going to happen and yet still forgive and live a, a healthy life for you? Well, I think there's a Bible verse that's called that we're to, to overlook an offense and that we're to learn to be forbearing. So I think that some people have a hard time saying they're sorry and they don't even see that it's that big of a deal that they should have to say they're sorry over certain minor things in life. And I think there is a strength in us to overlook offenses without needing a sorry every single time. And and when it's a maybe a bigger offense, maybe someone doesn't say they're sorry, but we can see they're sorry by their actions. They do put controls on their computer. They do get an accountability partner. They do go for help. They do show you action steps of sorry, even if the words couldn't come out of their mouth. I'd much rather see someone sorry than hear they're sorry, and then they don't show me they're sorry. So I think you can look for sorry in actions as well as words. But I think there's two the two things. We live with imperfect people. If someone is going to say, ouch, you hurt me, ouch, you hurt me, ouch, you hurt me, this bothers me, don't do this, every single day of your life, that is going to be so tiresome and devastating for someone yeah. to be that critical to your life that you know they're always commenting on what you do that offends them, what you do that's wrong. I think it's impossible to have a good relationship with anybody like that long-term. So I think there is a muscle that we need to develop when we're living with someone of accepting that we're living with imperfect people, accepting that they may do things differently than us and it's not all sinful, it's just different. Accepting that maybe they're messy and we're clean or they're organized and we're not and it's not a sin. It may be a personality problem, but it may not be a sin if I'm messy. It's okay to for me, but it may not be okay for you. So how do you learn to live with one another in the body of Christ or in a household where you have all these differences and people have different values and different personalities and different ways of doing things that may irritate you? So I don't know that sorry has to be all of that, but when someone truly sins against someone and causes serious impact and doesn't show sorry and say sorry, I think it's pretty tough to know where they are. And so when you don't know where they are, do you see me? Do you see the damage you've caused? Do you care about me? Do you care about the damage you've caused? Do you want our relationship to be better than it is? Does that matter to you? Any of that, you haven't seen any of it. It's pretty hard to feel safe with this person. It's pretty hard to stay in relationship with someone you don't know where they're at. And so I think this is really important that we talk about these relationship truths that are so hard to talk about because somehow Christian women have been advised to just be long-suffering and forbear and put up with it. And maybe you have to do that if you live in a 
prison camp or a concentration camp. You just have to suffer and forbear and put up with it because you don't have choices. But we do have choices. And we don't have relationship with our prison guards. And And if we have to sleep with them, it's called rape. It's not called mutual loving intimacy. And so let's be truthful. When you can't have a relationship with someone on an intimate basis that you don't trust them and you're afraid of them and you don't know where they are, what they're doing, what they think, if they're sorry, if they're not sorry, they're not showing you, they're not telling you. And so it creates a lot of anxiety inside of someone, whether they were your roommate from college and they're doing something dangerous and scary and you don't know what's going on. Are they selling drugs? Are they not selling? You don't know. And it's scary and it puts you in peril or you're married to that person. And I think we need to understand that that reality God honors and he wants you to take care of you. And if you're not safe and someone's not showing you they're changing and there's no evidence that they're sorry, then that tells you something. What's your problem with their problem is I don't feel safe. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on with our finances. I don't know what's going on with our sex life. I don't want to have sex with someone who might be having sex with multiple partners. I might get sexual, you know, sexual disease. I've got to parent these children. Our children need at least one healthy parent. What do we do? And I think these are really legitimate questions that as a church body, we don't answer very well for women caught in these problems. Okay. So I lied. I do have one more question (laughs) and it's probably going to be a hard one to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you think brings men, especially, or a, a sinning spouse, I guess, to a place of opening their eyes and seeing their sin? I know there are a lot of women listening that that is their deepest heart's goal is for them to come and say they're sorry and at least begin on the work of repentance. How do you think some men get there and why don't others, how do they get to that place of awakening? Yeah, that's a million dollar question if I have an answer. And and can you package something to get them there so we could give -hmm. it to these poor people? So I I think there's two ways, two paths to get there, and they don't always result in the outcome you want. But if you don't take these paths, it will never result in the outcome. So this is what I talk about being your husband's helpmate, in that your job is to help him be the best version of himself. Your job is to help him be the man that God calls him to be. That's what a helpmate does, is they help this person be all that God wants them to be in order to flourish and vice versa. He helps you to be all that you're to be to flourish. So when we're not saying the truth, when we're not speaking the truth in love, then we're not loving well. And so the first path of waking someone up to something destructive in their life is words. So, you know, honest, truthful, gentle, loving words, not scolding, shaming, you're a pervert, you know, kind of words, but but hey, I'm concerned about you. I see you drinking too much. I'm really concerned about you. I see that you have a black mole in the back of your neck and you haven't gone to the doctor. What's that about? You know, so as a helpmate, you are going to point out things. I, I'm seeing that you're losing your temper with the kids a lot. And I'm really concerned that that's going to affect the way that you want to be seen as a good dad. So what is it that's going on that you're concerned about that's causing you to be anxious or feel fearful, or you know, I see that you're spending tons of time on the computer. I'm afraid a lot of men are tempted by this porn stuff. Are you? Are, what's going on here? You know, so those would be 
uh, good questions that are not accusing or attacking. They're curious questions. They're speaking the truth in love. So that's the first channel that when you're honest enough about, hey, I'm observing that you're, you know, your eyes are dilated and you're, you know, you're checked out all the time. Are you on drugs? You know, would you be willing to take a blood test or a drug test? I'm concerned that you're, you know, you're not with us. And, and so as you're speaking the truth in love, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? That's what the Bible tells us, that that has an opportunity to help them see what they haven't seen. Jesus calls it blindness. We're blind to sometimes our sin, or we're even blind to our back end. You know, I went out of a bathroom one time when my back skirt was tucked into my pantyhose. And I was really glad that I had a friend behind me saying, oh my gosh, let me pull your skirt out. I wouldn't have wanted to walk in the hall of the hotel with my skirt tucked into my pantyhose. And so we don't all see things. Hebrews 3.13 says, let us encourage one another day after day, lest any one of us become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I think the first step is words, letting someone know, talking to them. The second thing is oftentimes with these kind of people, Julie, words don't work. Jesus used words with the Pharisees. He used words with Judas. They didn't wake him up. They didn't, they didn't repent. They didn't see what they were doing. Um, he used words with the rich young ruler. Those didn't work. So, so words don't always work. So don't feel like if only I had the right words, perfect words, if I took Leslie Vernick's course and got her words, they would wake him up. I've talked to plenty of men and I didn't wake <laughs> them up either. So, so don't think it's the perfect words. Yes, you do need to practice your words and say them as clearly and as lovingly as you can. But sometimes people still refuse to listen, as we see in Jesus's day. So the second thing is where we're really scared to do this, and this is consequences. Consequences wake people up. So when you tell your two-year-old, don't put the fork in the socket. Do not put the fork in the socket. Don't put your toy in the socket. You're going to get electrocuted. And they don't listen to your words. If they put it in the socket and get a good hard shock, it's probably something that they're not going to do again. They're going to learn the hard way through consequences that, oh my gosh, when I do this, something bad happens and it hurts me and I'm not going to do that again. And that's a gift when we have a soft consequence like that, so that we don't get ourselves electrocuted by doing something even worse. This is where I think the marital advice in the Christian world gets really icy because somehow as a wife isn't allowed to put consequences on the marital relationship for serious sin. So she still has to have sex. She still has to stay married. She still, so he can live like a tomcat and do what he wants. And she's supposed to be long suffering and persevere and forgiving with no consequences. And it's just not realistic. It's not what God says, what you sow, you reap. And that reaping is meant to wake you up to, wow, if I sow these seeds, I get a great crop. And if I sow these seeds, oh my gosh, nobody talks to me anymore. And so those are the things that wake people up. Words, hey, warning, you know, this person's dangerous, don't date them, and consequences. I dated them and they punched me in the eye, and that's a very tough lesson to learn, that this person is not safe and dangerous. And so I think it's really important that we do both with our children, with our spouses. Hey, the consequences of your sin is so serious, I will not continue to live with you if you're not really interested in changing. And I mean, you're interested in changing. If you're not interested in changing, I can't change you. And I accept that you're not interested in changing, but I can't live like this. I won't live like this. And that's a consequence. You don't have the pleasure of my company in a marriage, in my partnership with you, if you want to live like this. And that's tough for many women to say because they've put all their eggs in this basket and they're scared. 
of that consequence because it's a consequence to them and the kids as well. Let's pray for these people that need God's wake-up call, that need to repent, and for the women that are desperate to see that happen, that they would be able to walk through this difficult time. Father, we just pray for those who are listening today who see that there is serious sin going on in their home. It's not about minor things that we just need to forbear and accept. It's serious. It's deal-breaking sin, dishonesty, abuse, devaluing and dismissing and dishonoring stuff over and over again. Lord, these are patterns that are not easily broken, and people who do them don't usually want to change because they work. They work to get power and control over another. So, Father, I pray for any person who's listening to this podcast who's in this kind of situation, that she would trust you, that you have her here for a reason, that she is to listen to this because she is to know that sin has serious consequences, and sometimes it does break relationships. And that she's not wrong for thinking that and feeling that. That you're not mad at her because she can't wholeheartedly trust her husband or even want to kiss him at this stage of their marriage. Lord, give her wisdom on how she wants to handle herself in the midst of his sin. Because she can just as easily get impacted and caught into the dark side of his sin by being too afraid to confront it, or too angry to do it in love. And so, Lord, give her the wisdom and the support and the guidance and help that she needs to be the woman that you call her to be in an ugly situation, like you did with Nehemiah, like you did with Esther, like you did with Ruth. There are lots of women who got caught in ugly situations, Rashti, and they had to make tough decisions, and their life didn't always turn out like they thought, and they were scared of the outcome. We don't always know what the outcome is going to be, Lord, when we do the right thing. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give them that wisdom and the support to take the next right step. And the next right step might be just to listen and observe what they see and trust that that is information to help them take the next right step and the next right step. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Have you ever wondered how long you should keep hoping for a destructive spouse to change? And how will you know his change is real? Leslie is going to answer these questions and a lot more in a free live webinar on April 13th at noon and 7.30 Eastern. Go to lesliewernick.com forward slash free training to register. You must be registered to attend. And one more thing, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode of this important podcast. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with him with yourself and with others.